One of the most fascinating stories in the Bible is the conversion of a prejudiced Jew named Saul of Tarsus into the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Not only is it a fascinating story of history, it is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful evidences there is for the validity of Christianity. I think of two men who taught at Oxford named Lord Littleton and Benjamin Gilbert West. At one point in their lives, they wanted to destroy Christianity. They hated it. To destroy Christianity, they knew that they had to refute two things. One, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's not surprising. But the second, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Lord Littleton decided to take on the conversion of Saul. Benjamin Gilbert West decided to take on the resurrection of Jesus. They each went their separate ways to do their research to disprove those events. Events that they saw as cornerstones of Christianity. In the process, true story of history, each independently became followers of Jesus Christ. We know that's how powerful the resurrection of Jesus is. But what an illustration of the fact that that is how powerful of a testimony Paul's experience is. His conversion is presented three times in the book of Acts. Chapters 9, 22, and 26. In this study, we want to consider the version given in chapter 26. So if you're not already there, please turn with me past the four Gospels to the book of Acts, chapter 26. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 23. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Dr. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded these words. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. We're jumping into the middle of a story here as we move into Acts chapter 26. So let me give you some of the background. This is Paul's fifth defense since he has been taken as a prisoner back in chapter 21. In all, he gave six defenses as a prisoner. The first one was before the Jewish mob back in chapter 22. The second one was before the Sanhedrin. The third one was before the governor Felix. The fourth one was before the governor Festus. This fifth one will be before King Agrippa. And the final one will be before Caesar himself, from the best we can tell. In case you don't remember, allow me to remind you of how this whole mess got started. Back in chapter 21, Paul returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. When he got there, the first thing he was hit with was that misinformation had been spread about him because there were some people who were out to get him. Some Jews had been spreading the inaccurate accusation that Paul was anti-Jewish. In an attempt to set the record straight, Paul agreed to join four Jewish men in the participation of a Jewish vow, and Paul also agreed to pay their expenses. But instead of studying, instead of studying the record straight, Paul got into deeper trouble with the Jews because as they saw him coming out of the temple, they falsely accused him of taking a Gentile in there, which was strictly forbidden. It wasn't true. But they assumed that of Paul. They assumed the worst of him. So a Jewish mob began beating Paul until some Roman soldiers intervened and began carrying Paul to safety. But Paul, being the opportunist he was, asked for permission to address the large crowd, and the Roman commander granted him permission. That is recorded in chapter 22, where Paul gave his personal testimony about how the Lord Jesus Christ had transformed his life. Well, this Jewish crowd, or we might say this Jewish mob, listened to all of that. But when Paul mentioned that Christ 
had sent him to the Gentiles, the crowd went berserk, and the commander had to rescue Paul again. Since the commander couldn't find out what Paul had done wrong, he decided to beat it out of him until Paul informed him that he was a Roman citizen. Then the the commander backpedaled quickly and decided to put Paul in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, which was called the Sanhedrin. But that didn't accomplish anything because the things Paul said in front of the Sanhedrin started another riot and the commander had to rescue Paul again. Then at the end of chapter 23, a group of 40 men made a vow that they were not going to eat until they ambushed Paul and killed him. Now understand the story to this point. Paul had only been trying to do what was right, and yet the situation blew up in his face, so much so that that people were out to get him at all costs, whatever it took. The group that was against him was not about to let up. They were determined to hound him and get him if it's the last thing they did. So this group hired, uh, this group against Paul hired a slick and smooth-talking lawyer and traveled all the way to Caesarea out by the sea just to get Paul. They were not willing to leave it alone. They wouldn't let it die. So in chapter 24, they made their accusations in the presence of a Roman magistrate named Felix. If we had time, we could go back there and see that their accusations were truth mixed with error, which is the most dangerous kind of false accusation. Their statements were a mixture of truth and error that came out all woven together. As Barclay put it, quote, a series of half-truths and of twisted facts, end quote. Well, Felix didn't really know what to do with the situation, so he decided just to leave Paul incarcerated imprisoned. After a couple of years, and you heard me right when I said that, after a couple of years, Paul just sitting there waiting for something to happen on his case, Felix was replaced by another Roman magistrate named Festus. Paul's accusers tried to take advantage of the situation, this transition in government, so they immediately confronted Festus to try to get at Paul. So in chapter 25, Paul had to stand trial before Festus. And when Paul saw that he wasn't going to get a fair trial, he appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. The appeal was granted by Festus, but before Paul could be shipped off to Rome, a man by the name of King Agrippa came to visit Festus there in Caesarea. Agrippa was a king over part of Israel, And since he had much insight into the Jewish customs and the Jewish ways, Festus talked to him about Paul. He said, hey, I've got this prisoner here, unusual guy named Paul, and he began to tell the story. Well, this raised the curiosity of Agrippa, and he asked if he could personally hear from this unusual prisoner. Festus was eager to oblige Agrippa, because after all, Festus needed a formal accusation to write to Caesar when he sent Paul to Rome, and he didn't have one. So he thought, well, let's go through this again. Maybe I have some kind of formal accusation to send to Rome. All of that brings us to chapter 26. So with that as background, notice how Dr. Luke opens this chapter. He says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, 
you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. By the way, this whole scenario is a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said Paul would do when Jesus saved him. When Paul was converted back in chapter 9, Jesus said to Ananias that Paul is, quote, a chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's going to grab this opportunity to talk about Christ, and he's doing it not only to Festus and Agrippa, but also to many other prominent people who were gathered for this occasion, according to verse 23 of the previous chapter. Look back to the previous chapter, verse 23. So it says, So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Now, now think about what's happening here. Picture this. Lenski described it in this humorous way, and I quote, Here the Lord employs a pagan to provide a church, to bring all these sinners together, to fetch a preacher, to introduce him most effectively, and then himself to sit down to listen with the rest. That is the irony of this situation. They're calling Paul in. All of these unredeemed, unconverted people are calling, basically calling Paul in to preach. And he takes advantage of the opportunity. Verse 2, Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. It's interesting that Paul says this right here at the beginning because as you read through his presentation, and maybe you noticed this we read through it a moment ago, he doesn't really answer all the accusations. Instead, he tells King Agrippa what the real issues were and how Jesus Christ changed his life. Paul took the opportunity to tell Agrippa about Jesus Christ And Agrippa, as this unfolded, Agrippa realized what Paul was doing because later on he says to Paul, are you trying to make a Christian out of me? Are you trying to make me a Christian? Well, that's exactly what Paul was trying to do. So Paul relished this opportunity to address the king. In verse 3 he says, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Now, as we work our way through this testimony of Paul, we're going to draw some principles out of it for our own lives and how we should address unbelievers, how we should share the gospel, how we should share our testimony. So we're going to do that from time to time and then sort of pull it all together at the end. But the first one that I want to call to your attention comes right out of this introduction. I want you to notice that Paul begins by addressing King Agrippa respectfully. That may not seem like such a big big deal to you, but remember that Paul has been bounced around by the Roman legal system for over two years now. And it could have been very easy for him, very understandable if this had been the case, for him to allow frustration to come out as a result of all the unfair treatment he has experienced. In addition to that, we know from history that King Agrippa was living in an incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. And so it would have been understandable for Paul just to unload both barrels right at the beginning and just blast the guy. Yet Paul addresses him respectfully, courteously, and positively. 
Beloved, this is important for us to keep in mind because it's easy for us to come across very defensive at times when we talk to people about the Lord because many times people do put us on the defensive by the way they question us or by the way they talk to us. But we should always try to respond with graciousness. When we feel under pressure, we have a tendency to respond defensively, not graciously, but by God's grace, we need to respond with respect. Unfortunately, some Christians seem to always come across antagonistically or abrasively when they talk to others about the Lord. They come across like they have a chip on their shoulder. Maybe it's because in the past they have been put down for their commitment to Christ, and the result is that they're always defensive when they talk about the Lord. Listen, if that's the case with you, learn from Paul's example. If anyone had reason to be harsh, it was Paul. Yet he was gracious with his response. Remember, there is no virtue in being needlessly offensive. If our message about Christ is offensive, then we can't help that. We can't really change that because we can't compromise the truth. But we need to make sure that it is not our personality that is offensive or our presentation that is offensive. What Paul will eventually say on this occasion will offend his audience, at least some of his audience. But it wasn't the way he said it that offended. That's a very important distinction that we need to learn. Paul wasn't caustic, abrasive with his testimony. Instead, he gives a gracious introduction in verses 1 through 3. And with that, he launches into his defense, which is really nothing more than his personal testimony about what Jesus Christ had done in his life. As I mentioned, Paul's testimony appears three times in the book of Acts. The actual account of his conversion occurs in chapter 9, as Dr. Luke tells the story. Then in chapters 22 and 26, Paul tells others about what the Lord had done in his life. Now, it is especially interesting to compare the account in chapter 22 with this one here in chapter 26, because Paul is the one who describes the event in both cases. You see what I'm saying there? Luke describes it in chapter 9, because he recorded it happening. But in chapter 22 and 26, it is Paul who is giving the testimony, Paul describing the event. But listen to this. Because the audience is different, Paul gives different details. In chapter 22, He is giving his testimony before the Jewish fathers and brethren, so it is what you could call the Hebrew version of his testimony. Here, Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa, and this has been called the Gentile version, because Agrippa was basically a Roman ruler. Now, what's the point? What's the principle? Here it is. Paul gave his testimony in such a way so as to be of special interest to those who were hearing him. Now, I'm not implying that he said things that weren't true or that he fudged things. or he, No, no. There's no contradiction between the two accounts. But Paul does include or leave out certain details to try to make the impact stronger and the message more relevant to his audience. Let me framework this in a, in a biblical text. He knew how to be all things to all people, as he said in 1 Corinthians 9. Beloved, this is something we need to learn to do. 
When we give our testimony, we, we ought always to consider our audience. To whom are we speaking? After all, we are trying to communicate specifically with that person or those individuals, so we should bring out things that will be of interest to them and things they can relate to. That's what Paul did. This is very similar to Jesus' method of evangelism when you compare John 3 and John 4. Both chapters are tremendous presentations of the gospel, but they are radically different. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. John 4, a Samaritan woman. Both, in both cases, he presents the gospel, but he does it in a completely different way because he knew his audience. That's what Paul did. He adapted his presentation to his audience. And we should learn to do the same thing so we can also be all things to all people in order to save some. So let's see what Paul said. Verse 4. <clears throat> he says... My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. In other words, Paul had witnesses who could vouch for the validity of much of what he has to say here in this testimony. Verse 5, They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Of course, Paul's accusers would have never admitted that this is why he was being judged. But the fact of the matter is that it was. This was really the issue. And he brought it back to the issue. Verse 7, he says, To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. So Paul admits, as he's sharing this part of his testimony, that his Jewish kinsmen, and remember the group that's out to get him, it was the Jewish people, he admits that his Jewish kinsmen had a zeal, and they did have a zeal. It's just that it was a terribly misguided zeal and misdirected zeal. In Romans 10:2, Paul said, the Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That verse, by the way, strikes a lethal blow to the popular notion in our day that says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. The Bible certainly doesn't support that position. The Jews were zealous in their religion. In Paul's day, they were known as the God-intoxicated people. But their zeal was misguided. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They had zeal, Paul said, but not according to knowledge. It was an ignorant zeal, and their ignorance was not innocent. It was willful. They had all the evidence they needed because they had the Hebrew Scriptures, but they refused to hear their message. Every time an Israelite participated in the temple sacrifices, it should have reaffirmed the fact that fellowship with God only comes through a blood sacrifice, not by zealous works. But the Jewish people of Paul's day chose to ignore their own scriptures and even their own rituals, their sacrifices. Their ignorance was willful. They were sincere, but sincerely wrong. You know, sincerity is a great virtue, but it has to be coupled with truth and accuracy. For example, those of you who are parents or grandparents, if your 
child or grandchild is sick and you happen to give him or her poison thinking it's medicine, it doesn't matter how sincere you are at that point. Sincerity is a great virtue, but it has to be coupled with truth. It has to be coupled with accuracy. It is possible to have a zeal for God that's not according to knowledge. This is very common with people who are deeply involved in religion. They are zealous, but they refuse to hear the truth because of the blinding effects of religion. That's the condition Paul's kinsmen were in. Just as a side note here, Paul's reference in this verse to the 12 tribes shows the error, the fallacy of the very popular movement today called British Israelism, which says the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel are actually all Anglo-Saxon people. Listen, British and American people are not the ten lost tribes because all the twelve tribes were Jewish. And if you consult James the way he opens his letter, you'll find that the ten lost tribes aren't lost anyway because all twelve were represented in the group to which he wrote. But that's another sermon. Verse 8, Paul says this, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? That was the real issue. Paul kept bringing it back to the real issue, even though his accusers tried to get the whole situation sidetracked onto a host of other things. Back in chapter 24, when Paul's accusers presented their case before Felix, they said, quote, here's what they said, Paul is a troublemaker. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He tried to profane the temple. Those were their three accusations. But Paul knew what the real issue was. And he kept bringing it right back to that. I know this had to infuriate Paul's accusers because they didn't want to stay on the real issue. They wanted to hang Paul on a bunch of other things. Beloved, this brings up a very important principle for life that we need to learn if we're going to live life with discernment. And it is this. When people, now please hear this, when people are upset or angry about something, very often they will hide behind a lot of issues that are not really the issues at all. That's exactly what Paul's accusers did. And I have seen this same scenario in life time and time and time again. But unfortunately, many times people who listen to someone who is angry, many times people who listen don't have the discernment to realize what's going on. So let me say it again. When you have someone come to you who is upset or angry with another person or another group of people, you need to be very wise and discerning to realize that what you are hearing probably isn't the real issue at all, or it's not an accurate representation of the real issue at all. That's why Paul kept bringing things back to the real issue. In verse 9, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What is Paul doing here? He's showing that he can relate to how some of them believe because he used to believe that way. He's saying, I can understand. I can relate to that. Verse 10, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, 
and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It's interesting to note that Paul's description of himself in those two verses is almost an exact parallel with his accusers. They were enraged with him, just as he says he had been enraged against Christians. They pursued him tirelessly all the way to Caesarea by the sea to try to get him in trouble with Felix. And even after two years, they wouldn't let it go because the first thing they did when Felix was replaced by Festus was to go after Paul again. And Paul says, listen, that's the way I was before the risen Christ burst into my life. He says in verse 12, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. It's interesting to note that because of the intense heat of midday in the ancient land of Israel in the Middle East, a traveler only traveled in the midday if he was in a big hurry. That shows just how feverishly Paul pursued Christians to persecute them because he didn't even stop and rest during the heat of the day, which was the normal custom. But the light that burst on the scene that day was much brighter than the midday sun. Paul says in verse 14, And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul! Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. In other words, Paul, can't you see the futility of what you're trying to do? You can't destroy my church. And you can't resist submitting to me. This phrase at the end of verse 14 is similar to our statement that we sometimes use in our culture. You're just beating your head against the wall. In other words, it's not doing any good. That's what Paul was doing. The Lord was going to win, period. Verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let me tell you something. That statement had to drop like an atomic bomb on Paul when he heard Jesus say that. And it also had to have the same impact upon those who were hearing him tell this story on this occasion. Jesus of Nazareth? He was the one who was unlawfully done away with by the Jewish leaders and murdered. So if Jesus of Nazareth was the one speaking to Paul, then connect the dots. That must mean that Jesus of Nazareth had been resurrected. The despised Nazarene is the Lord of glory? That had to send Paul into shocked, stunned silence on that occasion in Acts 9. And then the same type of impact to those who are hearing him tell this story. Paul was personally confronted by the risen, glorified Christ. Now let me pause for just a moment here. Obviously there's no one in this room who has had this same kind of conversion that Paul experienced. You know, you're riding along on some animal, a horse or a donkey, and Jesus appears to you at midday, knocks you to the ground. We understand that. That's not this, we shouldn't expect the same experience. But it is imperative that you've been converted. It may not be the same kind of conversion experience that Paul had, but the end result is the same. 
Everyone's conversion is different because the Lord works with all of us in different ways. But the important thing is that we have been converted. Jesus said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So have you been converted? Have you come to the point in life where you've turned from your sin to follow Jesus Christ? Has there been a change in your life? If not, you haven't been converted and you won't enter the kingdom of heaven according to Jesus. Again, I say, your conversion won't be as dramatic as Paul's in the sense of having Jesus appear to you, knock you down, knock you blind, basically, speak to you and all of that, but you must be converted. This is how Paul was converted. Verse 16, Jesus said, But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. When, you, when we read the word minister here in verse 16, and I realize not every translation renders it the same, but if yours has that, just be aware of the fact that we might have a tendency to think of some kind of noble position, but the word is actually just servant. I believe some of the English translations render it that way. That's all Paul was, just a servant. That's all we are, servants. Jesus says in verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now notice what Paul does here. This is just a, a little insight into the way Paul thought. It is significant that Paul states what Jesus said to him. Why? Why do you suppose? Because this was a way for Paul to state the plan of salvation. This verse is basically, basically an explanation of the plan of salvation. People need to turn from their darkness to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. That's all right here in this verse. So Paul strategically, brilliantly, as he's giving his testimony, he inserts the gospel into it. Rather than just saying, Jesus told me I needed to be saved, or Jesus gave me the gospel, he tells what it is so that the crowd hearing would understand what the gospel is. So there's an application, there's a principle we can draw about sharing our testimony with non-Christians. It's important, very important, as we share how Christ has changed us, that we state the gospel in our testimony so that those hearing us will have a basis to know what they need to do to be saved. That's what Paul does here. And in verse 19, Paul continues. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. In other words, Paul says that he preached and he taught. His message was this. If you've really repented, then there will be such a dramatic change in your life that your works will prove or demonstrate you've repented. Lang put it this way, quote, None more firmly than Paul rejected works as a ground of salvation. Did you catch that? None more firmly than Paul rejected works as a ground of salvation, none more firmly demanded good works as a consequence of salvation. He's right. 
And that's, that's the message that we need to be proclaiming today because, frankly, there are people who think they're saved, people who are around Christianity in the church, but their works demonstrate otherwise. But they're, they're resting and saying, well, you know, when I was a little kid, I went to Sunday school or Bible club, and I said that prayer, I'm good, I'm fine. But their life shows no evidence whatsoever of a Christ-changed life. So Paul preached that anyone who truly repents, Jew or Gentile, can be right with God. And in verse 21, Paul says, For these reasons, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Again, Paul brought it back to what the real issue is or was. He knew what the real issue was, and he knew that his accusers would never admit what it was. So he kept bringing it all back to the real issue. Paul's accusers hid behind behind a lot of other accusations, but Paul just kept bringing it back to this issue. And in verse 22, he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Now, when you sort of enter into this scenario, this context, then it gives you the insight to realize that Paul's accusers would have been furious for Paul saying that God had helped him. That's what he says. God has helped me to this day. Help from God. They would have been furious because, remember, they had convinced themselves they were doing the will of God. They convinced themselves they were doing God's work by trying to kill Paul or eliminate him. It's amazing what people can convince themselves of, especially in the name of religion. But the fact of the matter is that God had helped Paul to go through all that he went through so Paul could proclaim the same message that had been predicted throughout Hebrew Scripture. In verse 23, he says, here's the message, that the Christ, remember, that's not a personal name of Jesus, that's the title, that the Messiah would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And that is exactly what Paul was doing on this very day. Think about it. He is witnessing to a Gentile king about the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather than preaching a sermon, which they would not have allowed Paul to do, he relayed his personal testimony about what Jesus Christ had done in his life. And in the middle of that, he wove throughout that that testimony, the gospel message, so that this audience would know what they need to do to trust Christ and be saved. Now, as we wind down, I want to just leave us with some practical principles of application to take with us from this example of Paul. There are four of them. I want to just sort of go through his bullet points. Number one, be ready. Beloved, be ready to give your testimony. Life is filled with unexpected opportunities, and we need to look for those opportunities. Many times we will have spontaneous opportunities with just one person to share what Christ has done in our lives, how he has changed us, so we need to be ready and looking. Paul saw this legal proceeding as an opportunity to talk about Christ. It would have been very easy for Paul to be so nervous, so anxious, so worried about this, you know, i got to say the right thing, or I'm going to be stuck here for another two years, that he would have missed the opportunity, but not Paul. 
He saw the opportunity. Beloved, we need to be like that. We need to be ready. Can you give your testimony at the drop of a hat to someone that you happen to bump into? Are you ready, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, be ready always to give an answer? Principle number two I take from Paul's example, stick to the point. Don't get lost in a lot of unnecessary details because you'll often lose your audience. When I was preparing this message, I read these 23 verses out loud, slowly, deliberately, and timed them. And it, and it took under five minutes to read them. When we share our testimony, it doesn't have to be long, drawn out. In fact, most of the time, it's more effective when it's not long. Most of the time, it's better when it's short and to the point. Paul didn't include all the details. He didn't chase a bunch of rabbits around. He included the details that were especially pertinent to his audience. And that leads to principle number three, relate to your audience. Whether it's an audience of one or 100, it's important that we relate to them. In this version of his testimony, Paul included details that would be especially interesting to King Agrippa. It's a different version in chapter 22. He talked about many things that King Agrippa would be able to relate to, and beloved, we need to be able to do the same thing when we talk with people. We need to show them that we're human, that we can relate to them, they can relate to us, and we use that as a bridge to tell them what Jesus Christ has done. And that's principle number four. Principle number four, major on what Christ has done in your life, not on what you have done. Some testimonies glorify sin. You've heard those. I've heard those. Some testimonies glorify the person giving the testimony rather than glorifying Christ. We've all heard those kinds of testimonies which either glorify sin or glorify the person. That's a tragedy. The important thing is what Christ has done in our lives to redeem us. So don't talk all about yourself. Sure, if it's your testimony, you need to talk about yourself somewhat, but don't talk all about yourself. Talk about what Christ has done in your life and how he has changed you. That's exactly what Paul does here. And we would be wise to follow his example. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you for our time here in the Word to look at this powerful, fascinating section of Dr. Luke's account known as Acts and to see the Apostle Paul to see how he ministered, to see how he thought, to see how he worked, how he, how he did ministry. There is so much, Father, that we could learn from this example. And I pray that we would not merely see this as history, though obviously historically accurate, but that we would realize that this was recorded by the Holy Spirit for a reason, multiple reasons. Certainly one of those reasons is so that we can learn, so that we can be sharpened, so that we can... We can emulate Paul's example. So help us to be ready. Help us to be ready to share, as 1 Peter 3 says, to always be ready. And to be able to relate to people who, with whom we talk and to share what Christ has done and to, to share the gospel in the midst of all of that. And may you be pleased to use us to touch other people's lives. Even if it's just in the case of some plant, some water. Maybe we're, we're at some point in that process where we, we would desire to be the one who reaps the harvest, but that's not always the case. Help us just to be faithful, knowing that you are the Lord of the harvest, and you are the one who gives the harvest. 
Thank you for the privilege of being used by you. And use this text in our lives as you see fit. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.